I grew up watching her. That's the reason why I play tennis. You've touched our hearts and minds to use our voices to dream big. One of the greatest champions that our country has ever produced in any sport to one of the most important players that any sport has ever had. There's a reason why she's the GOAT, because she's the greatest of all time. And guess what? You're just beginning! From WBEZ Chicago, this is Making. I'm Brandon Pope. Today... Serena. Making Serena. Serena Williams has won 23 Grand Slam titles, more than any other tennis player in the open era. She holds a joint record of 186 consecutive weeks at number one. But more than the stats, Serena Williams has become a cultural icon that's bigger than the game. Very few players ever have an impact beyond their sport. Serena and her sister Venus, as much as anyone that I can think of in any sport, walked in a door that might not have otherwise existed. They built the door. From Compton, California to GOAT status, what were the making years that defined Serena Williams as one of the greatest athletes of all time? I went on the courts with just a ball and a racket and a hope, and, and that's all I had. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Serena's story begins in Compton, California, before she was born, when her father, Richard Williams, had a dream. What did you know about tennis? Was it a sport you knew much about? No. You literally didn't know anything about the sport? No. So how did you discover it? Watching television in Compton and the TV we had didn't have a remote control. A guy called Bud Collins gave a girl named Virginia Rizik a check. I don't remember how much the check was now. But I thought, that's a hell of a lot of money for four days. I went to my wife and told her, we're going to have two kids and and become rich. And they're going to be tennis players. And she said, oh, no. But we did. We had two kids, and I wrote an 85-page plan for Venus. I wrote a plan for Serena on what I wish to do, how it would be done. And Richard followed through with that plan. Oftentimes, it would be my mom. She would take us to school, drop us off, get picked up, and come home from school, go to the tennis court. This is Serena's younger sister, Isha Price. He would let us go to the, he called it the sand pile, which is like the playground. And so, you know, obviously you get to an age where you don't want to go to the sand pile anymore, but we always had to go um, because Venus and Serena enjoyed that. What was it like growing up in Compton, California back then? It's hard for me to kind of describe to people because everybody grew up somewhere. You know, I didn't really think of Compton as this really terrible place. You know, it was home. There were things about it that, you know, were less than ideal. I remember we had graffiti on our house. And I remember asking my mom, I'm like, man, like, why can't we just paint? Like, we cleaned up the backyard. We did all the things. And daddy never painted the front of the house. And I could not understand when I was older. Finally, you know, I asked him directly and he said, you know, this will help you to be strong. You know, it doesn't matter what people say about you, what they say about your house, what they say about like where you grew up. You should be proud of where you come from, no matter where that is, because where you come from is really within you. 
you know? So it was like that growing up. It was a lesson behind everything. Our house was very um, loving and we had a ton of fun. And even though to the outside world, it was obviously very strange. Um, there were gang members and stuff that used to live across the street. They would, you know, they sold drugs. It just was what it was. It was Compton. And uh, I remember when we finally left, we all kind of made this pact to not have to go back. Like if we went back, it would be on our own terms. And that's what we've been able to do. Richard says Serena first picked up a racket when she was three. Serena says it was as early as 18 months. He coached the girls hard. Good racket speed. Good racket speed. Speed that racket head up. If you're down with your feet flat like a 97-year-old person, you'll never be a tennis player. How do you feel the way you're hitting the ball right now? Good, Daddy. How about your feet? Your feet moving well? No, Daddy. But yours? Yes, sir. Very good. And he was convinced they were the next greats. His instincts would prove right, of course. But in these early days, his confident attitude made them notorious. The Williams sisters are not well-liked by their competitors. He sent tape after tape to the greatest coaches around the country and finally caught the attention of nationally renowned tennis coach Rick Macy. I actually got a phone call, and uh, it was from Richard. You know, he told me I have two daughters, Venus and Serena. They're really good, and, you know, you want to come to Compton. You may have seen Rick depicted in the Oscar-nominated film King Richard. He coached the Williams sisters until they went pro. For whatever reason, and obviously looking back, I'm probably the only guy in the world saying their best vacation ever is Compton, California, that I just decided to go out and take a look. I never did it before, and I haven't done it since. I went out there, and uh, that night, met at the hotel room. Uh, Venus, Serena, Orsine, and Richard come to the hotel room. Venus on one leg. Serena on the other. And then Richard, he pulls out a piece of paper and he started grilling me. I thought I was in a deposition. So then the next day he goes, we're going to pick you up uh, at uh, seven o'clock and we're going to East Compton Hills Country Club. So at seven o'clock, they pick me up in that bus. I get in the passenger side. Listen to this. I get harpooned in the buttock by a spring. I look in the back. There's like garbage, ball hoppers, all kinds of dirty laundry. And Meek and Venus are back there all scrunched up. So about 15 minutes into the ride, I'm looking around and I'm going, this is a strange place for a country club. We pull up to a park. There's guys playing basketball, about 20 guys. People are passed out, smoking, drinking. And they see Richard. They go, hey, King Richard. They called this guy King Richard in 91. So we go across the basketball court. It parts like the Red Sea. It was like they were celebrities, you know, like it was just the craziest thing. We go onto the court. So then we started drilling. Now, here's VW and, and Meek, arms, legs, hair flying everywhere. Beads are coming off their head. And I'm going, what in God's name am I doing in Compton, California? It was like out of control. Then I said, let's play competitive points. So once we started playing competitive points, the whole landscape changed. The movement was just crazy. They started popping the popcorn, extra butter. The preparation got better. But the burning desire of both girls to get to the ball, they ran so hard, Brandon, their nose was almost on the ground. I never saw anything like it. And I just saw something I never saw on the inside. 
And I went to Richard. I said, Richard, come here. And it was more about VW at the time. I said, you got the next female Michael Jordan on your hand. And he puts his arm around me and he goes, no, brother, man. I got the next two. Macy was sold. He moved the whole Williams family to Boca Raton, Florida, so the girls could attend his tennis academy. Macy rented the family a house and gave them everything they needed. Health insurance, a dog, a new Aerostar van, even annual passes to Disney World. When the kids were little, every single night when they left the court, they would say, Rick, thank you very much. Every night. And I don't I don't see that a lot these days. And every day they brought their books to the court. And when it rained, Richard told them to go up to my office and study. These are the life lessons that Richard and Orsine, you know, instilled in the kids. They trained hard and they shined bright. But in an unusual move, Richard Williams pulled his girls out of the junior leagues. He was hyper-protective of them. He wanted to save them from the ugliness of the junior tennis world. you got to understand that you're dealing with an image of a 14-year-old child. And this child going to be out there playing when your old ass and knee going to be in the grave. You're dealing with a little black kid and let her be a kid. She answered it with a lot of confidence. Leave that alone. You know, I think, you know, in hindsight, it was uh, an incredibly smart move. This is tennis Olympian and now broadcaster Shonda Rubin. She played against Serena at her peak. Because I came up in the junior system. It was naturally expected that Venus and Serena should be playing junior tournaments. Who are they to not go through the system that every all-time great went through uh, to a certain degree? Um, but in, in hindsight, it was it was a good move because I think it, it number one, has given us the longevity that we've seen uh, in Venus and Serena. Um, I think it also allowed them to be out there as more of a team. You know, when you're going through juniors and you're competing in some of the same tournaments or in the same circuit, you know, it's a different type of competitiveness that comes out. And I think, you know, all of the positive things that we would eventually see in Venus and Serena, a lot of it was because of that base they had. You know, they were focused on the long game. They were focused on developing complete games for a professional player, not necessarily a junior player. And so I think all of those things contributed, um, you know, to the successes that we saw. And while the sisters both trained intensely, Venus outshined. From all over the planet they have come to get a look at Venus. She was known as a tennis phenom. And by age 14, Venus was nationally ranked with a multi-million dollar Reebok deal. She was so accomplished, the Women's Tennis Association let her go pro early. But little Serena was there too, taking stock. She trained took note of Venus's faulty strokes, and made plans of her own. If you were a tennis player, who would you want to be like? Well, I like other people to be like me. (laughs) That's a good answer. All right, now, Rick, there are so many players and coaches throughout the years that have said Venus is good, but the younger one has the drive. What is it that you saw in Serena? Did did she have any of that it factor? Both the girls have it, you know, and I mean – I think Venus could have been maybe even better. I I know that sounds crazy, but that's a different discussion. But the one thing about Serena, the more intense it got, the more competitive, she went deeper. And that separates great from good. One thing I did see at a young age, she kind of knew where you were going to hit the ball before you did. And that was innate. And it looked like she had all the time in the world. 
but the, the competitiveness. Even in practice, when she was playing guy, she just felt she never lost. She ran out of time. <laughs> this is the way she thought. But her confidence and belief, it's one thing to hope to win. She expected to win. At that point, Serena's biggest claim to fame was being Venus's sister. But she was hungry, and upon turning 14, she wanted to go pro early, just like her sister. But the Women's Tennis Association did not let her. Her resume wasn't robust enough, and her parents wanted her to wait too. With all the adults in the room telling her to take it easy, Serena Williams did what any determined teenager would do in that situation. She sued the WTA. But the lawsuit didn't go very far. Serena's parents begged her to withdraw it, and she reluctantly did. But not even a full month later, Serena Williams found her way into a professional tournament as a last-minute wildcard entry. She made her professional debut at the Bell Challenge in Quebec. It was 1995. It was an ominous kickoff to her tennis career. She was eliminated in less than an hour. One of the things that happened back in the day when she played that first tournament in Quebec. Isha Price. She decided that she wasn't ready to be pro. And so she went on the road and she she flew to where Venus was. <laughs> Funny story. And Venus was like, well, what happened? And she was like, um, I'm not ready to be pro. I'm going to be your hitting partner. And that's what's getting ready to go down because clearly I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and and that's what she did for a long time and just did the grind and, and did everything necessary over the next few years, she faced the best players in the world. By July 1999, Venus was ranked fourth in the world. Serena was 11th, but neither had clinched a Grand Slam title. And at the U.S. Open that year, all bets were on Venus to win the first. But those bets were wrong. Venus lost to Martina Hingis, but then... Tina Hingis lost to Serena. Ladies and gentlemen, the 1999 U.S. Open Women's Singles Champion, Serena Williams. At only age 17, Serena Williams became the first black woman to win a Grand Slam event since Althea Gibson in 1956. The Williams sisters were on top of the tennis world. Then, in 2001, it felt as if the tennis world was pushing back. Still some booze, but uh, perhaps not as many as expected. But it has not been a pleasurable experience being at this court this afternoon. At the Indian Wells Open, when Venus withdrew ahead of her semifinal match against Serena, allowing Serena to walk into the final, the crowd called foul. Richard and both sisters were accused of match-fixing. Serena rallied to win the championship, but that did not stop the boots. 
well. I think that's, that's pretty bad, you know. She's got through so well to win this match, got herself together, and, uh, well, she knows her family supports her. Richard Williams says he was attacked with racial slurs. The sisters vowed to never return. This was a considered our, like, home tournament. Isha Price. Um, and we felt that the tournament itself didn't do a better job of protecting because there are steps that have to be taken if something like this happens. And I think for a long time, you know, something like that affects you because obviously we don't look like everyone else. Serena didn't look like everyone else and, and crying in her towel in between changeovers, something that we just didn't do. She just didn't do. And one of the things I remember the most is what she said, <laughs> you know, after, like, I was crying. That doesn't mean much because I cry all the time. Everybody will tell you. My sisters will tell you. It's terrible. I am the crybaby in my family. But um, after when she was doing the on-court interview, she said something to the effect of, and, and even those of you who are booing, thank you too. <laughs> you know, because like, at some point you have to say, you know, she was like, I appreciate everybody who's out here, you know, like I, and in, in a way I forgive you for what you're doing, but it was hard for a long time to forgive that moment. But we made the decision as a family after that, that we would always have some presence because we definitely felt after that it was us against the world. I think we got lulled into a false sense of security, like, Everybody loves us. It's great. You know, like everything is great. And then it became like a reality check. But after that notorious incident, Serena goes on a tear. What a great point to end it. And Baby Sis has finally won. The Italian Open. Then the French. Then Wimbledon. Then the U.S. and Australian Opens. Serena Williams, the seventh player in tennis history to win three consecutive Grand Slam titles. Serena Williams, she is the 2002 U.S. Open champion and remains the number one player in the world. All right, now, Shonda, you played Serena Williams at Wimbledon in 2002. She beats you 6-3, 6-3. Can you tell us what Serena brought to the court at that tournament and and what made her such a formidable opponent? I think what made Serena so tough, especially on grass at Wimbledon, was the complete game that she had. You know, and you think about you think about playing on grass and, and most times, you know, we think, oh, players have to be aggressive. They've got to come in. They've got to be serving and volleying, at least at that time. Well, Serena, she didn't have to play a certain way. She just played her game. She had the serve. You know, she could return and really make you feel her presence. You know, she had good height, but she was also quick and was a good mover and, you know, an economical mover. And so you didn't really feel like you had any space to hit into. And that was the feeling for me um, being on the other side of the court against her. And, you know, we talk so much about her serve being one of the greatest serves, you know, in the history of the women's game, you know, if not the greatest. And it was so good because she could hit to every single spot in the service box. 
She could hit out wide. She could hit up the tee. She could go into the body. Those are kind of the primary three. But she could do it with the same look, with the same toss. So you couldn't read it. And so it was it was the sum total of her game and what she brought to the court. So even if you were a good returner like I was, how do you how do you make inroads into that kind of service game? You know, it's it's a it's a total package that you got. You know, she could play through you. And as she got more confident, she would just take the ball short. She could literally play through you. And other players on the tour knew that. Even if she was the underdog when she was little. But her firepower to take the ball early, hold serve, take advantage of your second serve, the angles that she could hit. And people don't talk about this enough. Off both wings with quality. Once she opened up the court like the Red Sea, she could just take the next one early. And that's what this is all about, opening up the court. And people just see the power, the raw power of Serena. She's very smart, too. Serena was 21 years old, and she held all four major titles, not in the same calendar year. They dubbed it the Serena Slam. And to win it, she had to beat her sister in all four finals. No wish I could have been the winner today, but of course you have a great champion, Serena, and now she's won, you know, all all four Grand Slams, which is something I would love to do one day. So, yeah, just trying to be just like her. And <laughs> Isha, there have been many times when Venus and Serena had to play each other. What was it like for you and the family in those finals to see your sisters go at it? It was the worst feeling and the best feeling. You know, um, you know, it, it was it was really tough. Like, you know, I remember the first time it happened and we were like, OK, so how do we do this? And we we're like, we're just going to go out. And it was like, we'll just clap for the good points, you know, because like, what else do you do? You know what I mean? You, you, you try to applaud the good points, but you, you're feeling some kind of way. And then it got to the point where we just it was too hard. So we wouldn't go. And the last time this happened was 2017. <laughs> and I was the only one there. I was in, it was in Australia. It was funny because by this time, I guess they knew. And the hotel <laughs> said, we, we have a little room for you. So you can go and you can sit in there and you, if you want. And you can watch there if you're not going to go on site. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going on site. So I had this whole room essentially to myself. And it's the, the same feeling. You feel such a joy because you're like, okay, this is what we wanted, right? Like we wanted them to both get there, to get to those finals, to be able to to compete against one another. Like that's what we wanted. But it's just so tough because you want it for both of them so badly. And you know that in the end, there's only going to be one winner. But then you definitely feel like we've already won. It, but it, it was very, very challenging, especially for my mom and my dad. It was weird because sometimes we would be the only people in the player area, you know. So it, it was sometimes a little weird, um, but also challenging, but also joyous. Again, bittersweet. Rick Macy again. Ish had to watch this 31 times. That's how many times they played. And when it's all said and done and Ish knows this, uh, the Williams family won. Even though there was an official winner, they they won, you know, and that's that's all the takeaway because there are two peas in a pod and sisters like no other on the court competitive. But once it was over, 
You know, they were skipping and holding hands at age nine, and they're still doing it at age 40. After the break, Serena hit some hurdles before reaching GOAT status. More making in a minute. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The next decade sees a rocky road for Serena. Soon after her first Serena slam, her oldest sister, Yatendi Price, is killed in Compton, an innocent bystander in an attack of gang violence. Serena continued to rack up Grand Slam titles, but she's distracted. Serena Williams is hospitalized in Los Angeles after having emergency treatment for a blood clot in her lungs. Every few years, she's hit with a knee injury, a tendon tear, and even a pulmonary embolism that takes her out of the game. Her year-end rank in 2006 dropped to 95, her lowest since 1997. Isha, what were your thoughts on this period for Serena? What was the family's perspective on this one? It was just tough to to watch um, and to see her go through that. Um, you know, it, it does get to a point where you're like, your life is way more important than this than this game, you know. And the pulmonary embolisms were really hard for us because she almost lost her life. And so then it becomes like, okay, everything being in perspective, you know, you hone in on what's more important, you know, and that's what we did, you know, just kind of, it did take her away from the game. And, and there was a reevaluation that she had to do in terms of like, what do you want to do? How do you want to handle this? And it was scary, you know, for us. Cause we were like, you, you don't have to do anything else in this sport. Like, you know, you can walk away now. It's great. It's fine. Um, but that's not what she wanted to do. She wanted to do it on her terms. We had gone to Africa. You know, you go to Africa and it definitely changes you. She made this decision and she said, you know, it doesn't matter because of where I come from and what I know exists inside me. You know, she was like, we made it to the diaspora across this triangular trade, like, you know, all, some people didn't make it, but like our ancestors made it because look, I'm here. So I'm going to do the best I can with what I got. You know, I think that's one of the toughest parts of, of being an athlete and having, you know, a long career, having the longevity. Shonda Rubin again. And, you know, maybe the the casual fan doesn't think about because when they see players winning, you know, they're they look healthy. They, they seem like everything is, is, you know, firing. And it's almost like it was it was meant to be in that moment. But there are a lot of tough times that go into getting onto court and being in that position to win. And I think for Serena, it was dealing with with all of those injuries and, you know, trying at a certain point to remotivate herself And so for me, what was most impressive about Serena is the way she did recommit after, you know, losing first round 
of the French Open in 2012. I think that was a real catalyst for her. You know, there's a moment for, for every player at a certain point where you go, okay, I'm not supposed to lose that match. And even if I lose that match, I'm not supposed to lose that match that way. And I have to change. I have to, you know, do something completely different. Then in 2012, following a dramatic loss in the first round of the French Open, she reached out to French coach Patrick Moritoglu. Something was wrong, really, clearly. I watched the match, that's it. She was struggling to go back to winning a Grand Slam and it was affecting her. Even the way she was thinking, she was not thinking like Serena. They focused on her serve and then... She was back. Serena is the Wimbledon champion. She won Wimbledon. A year later, the U.S. Open. She was 31, the oldest player ever ranked number one. And then a few years later, she completed her second Serena Slam. At the end of the day, through all the injuries and everything that happened, you don't lose the ability. You don't lose the Compton Street fight. You don't lose the firepower. You don't lose the serve. She never lost anything. But once she won Wimbledon, it just showed her again the number 90-whatever is irrelevant. And then once she got on a mission and she got the confidence back, okay, she just took off and, and never looked back. Roughly a decade later, Serena Williams retired. She's regarded as one of the greatest tennis players of all time with a record 23 Grand Slam titles. We asked our guest what they see as her legacy. That is a tough question. I, I, you know, I don't. I definitely think that if I had to to choose one thing, I would say it was just her lion-like desire to never lose. It wasn't really for her. It wasn't about winning. I mean, she loved to win. Don't get me wrong, but. It was literally, she just hated losing. She hated losing more than than loving winning. I think for me, you know, it's almost full circle. I mean, you think about what draws us to players, whether it's how dynamic they are, whether it's how they play the game, whether we enjoy just watching them play and compete. And Serena, as a young champion, really brought a lot of people into the sport, drew a lot of people in, and also... Part of her legacy um, is, is also creating change in the sport, changes in the game. The power tennis that she brought you know, to the forefront, along with Venus, the power tennis was what players had to measure up against and measure their games against. And so you know, she literally made other players better. So that is a huge part of her legacy. She showed you know, women's tennis or just women's athletic. You can really show your emotions on the court and that rage and the fist pump and bringing the knee up. And she just carried herself different. But she said, that's okay to be like that. And maybe some people didn't like it, but that's just how she was wired. You know, she's out in front going down as the greatest of all time, not just tennis player. I think one of the greatest athletes of all time. But no, at the end of the day, her ripple effect is just catastrophic. But I think her best act is yet to come. I think she has a platform and a brand like no other, you know, and I think that we're going to see the best of Serena yet to come, if that's possible.
Making is a production of WBEZ Chicago and is part of the NPR Network. This episode was produced by Hina Srivastava and edited by Justin Boole. I'm your host, Brandon Pope. Our executive producer is Brendan Benizak. More episodes are on the way, so be sure to press that subscribe button, and we'll see you soon.